Greetings and salutations, friends. Editor Chris here, and I just wanted to thank you for checking out our episode on Fear Street Part 2, 1978. Now, before you settle in, I want to fill you in on an oddity you're going to notice in this episode. We actually had a technical mishap during the first half of the episode that caused us to lose Paris's recorded audio. Now, we were able to pull his voice from the recording of our call, but it sounds noticeably different than we usually do. Now, the second half of the episode is just fine and back to the normal quality you're used to. And we've already taken steps to prevent this from happening again. So really, I just want to thank you for having patience and sticking with us through the first half of this episode. But we hope you enjoy the show. If you want to cry, we'll cry together. Greetings and salutations, and welcome to the spooky season with Hacker Slash. If you're joining us again, welcome back. You're an impatient bastard, aren't you? If this is your first time listening, welcome to the party. We are a horror movie review podcast dedicated to telling you whether a movie is a hack, a total joke, a waste of time, or a slash. Totally killer, pun intended. We believe horror is for everyone, and as such, we're rating these movies with the perspective we've all gained from our varying walks of life and the flavors of fear we fancy most. My name is Chris. I'm your friendly neighborhood slasher enthusiast. This week, I'm joined by the super fly space guy, Mac. That smell better be skunk. The gore lover, Alexis. My sister's in the toilet. The cowardly creeper, Ryan. Drugs, baby, drugs. And the scream queen, Paris. I watched my dad go to jail when I was six. We're continuing our October celebration this year by checking out the second entry in a trilogy that hit Netflix earlier this year. Before we head to camp, though, we have some follow-up. So we finally went back to theaters to see Nia DaCosta's Candyman. After what felt like an eternity of waiting, it finally happened. And here's a spoiler, we all loved it. Now, what I was really anxious to see is how the listeners felt. And in a shocking turn of events, and something that doesn't necessarily parallel the reviews that I've read online, is that only 8% of our listeners gave it a hack, and the other 92% gave it a slash. I think that has to do with the fact that the people that review movies online sometimes suck, and our listeners are lovely people. As evidenced by the man who went to go review Halloween Kills, but hates horror movies and had the nerve to say that Halloween was a ripoff of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and you could not pick two more different movies. Well, we do have a couple comments. Here's some from Instagram. Stevie said, great companion to the first movie. Was a little thrown off by the rushed third act, though. And that's actually a comment that we got a couple times. Shout out to Stevie, though, because Stevie was an extra and can be found in the art gallery with a pink denim jacket. That's fun. Looking fly as hell. We also have a comment from Thomas from Instagram who said, This film elevates the original to create a meta story rich with social commentary and horror. And that's really how I feel about this, Thomas. Que rico. We have another comment from one of our patrons, Kyle, who said, I finally saw it. Overall, great cinematography, a handful of great scenes, plenty of homage to the originals, and an overall slash in my book. However, I think this was caught in a push and pull between being a Peel message movie and a horror movie. I know he was not directing, and props to DaCosta, but everyone I saw it with was also curious why so many scenes seemed added for story but had no follow-up, such as bathroom girl scene, dad in the window and his art collection, and the rushed ending where now Candyman can be called in to protect you? Anyways, enjoy this episode, and I'm looking forward to spooky season. I have to agree with a little bit of that and disagree with a little bit. I do think that like calling Candyman to protect you at the end is a weird experience, you know? It's not his vibe. It's not what he does. It's not. But I think that's like the way that, you know, Paris mentioned in that episode, it's the reclamation of 
Candyman as more than a myth, but more of a guardian and, and turning him away from being a community villain to be a community hero in a, in a very strange sense, because it's like the idea of being unwilling martyrs. What I thought was really interesting, I feel like the the message about her father had a very clear impact because his career and his actions overshadowed her and she was constantly trying to be known as her own self as her own woman and yet the men in her life constantly overshadow her so i felt like there was plenty there but but i i will say that i agree that there's no being no follow-up to the bathroom scene it was a fun kill some of my favorites but probably could have done some more wreckage and we have one last comment from another one of our patrons alex i love this movie and i loved your thoughtful insights on the imagery and lore surrounding it i saw it opening day first show and i can't wait to see it again my only problem with the movie is I wish it was a bit longer. This more or less stems from me being greedy and wanting to dive deeper into some of the characters and their backstories. Nia DaCosta and Jordan Peele put forth an exhilarating horror thriller. Their use of mirrors was frightening and has permanently changed my relationship with my reflection. As Siskel and Ebert would say, two thumbs up. This is one of the strongest slashes I've seen in a while. Lastly, I hope to see this movie nominated for all the major awards next year. Now, I will also add that Alex tried to get me to say Candyman five times in his comment, but I will absolutely not be doing that. So that was omitted from this comment. I love that. I love that so much. <laughs> you definitely found a friend in Ryan here. Hey, I even challenged Brittany on Twitter to uh, to say it five times because literally nothing would happen. And as I stated there, the only thing that would happen would be Paris would sweat. Maybe Alexis would sweat a little bit, but nothing's going to happen. To be clear, she did take a long time to write back and I was getting a little concerned. <laughs> I also want to remind everyone, don't be like Mac, be like me, where I don't believe in ghosts, but I also don't believe in testing the world, okay? That part. And that's our follow-up. Well, back in episode 168, we covered the first film of a summer Netflix trilogy that unearths the darkness looming over the fictional town of Shadyside. That film, set in 1994, followed a group of teenagers during their encounters with the source of evil behind a series of brutal murders. The second film, though takes us back in time to explore the trauma endured by another shady cider, one who managed to come face-to-face with evil during a summer camp massacre. This week, we're talking about Fear Street Part 2, 1978. Now, who's already seen this before this episode? I shamelessly have. After we recorded Fear Street Part 1, I was so excited, and I feel like it was the day after that I sat down to watch this, and Part 3 a few days later after that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm in a similar but slightly different boat, which is I watched Fear Street Part 1 before we did that episode, and I had to go straight into Part 2 because these two, like, I don't know, one just makes you need to see two so bad. So I saw it a couple of months ago before we got around to doing it, but I'm so excited that we are. So I was not on the original Fear Street episode, but I did watch it in preparation for this. I gotta say, I'm with Mac, and I'm actually retroactively hacking the first Fear Street So my expectations were low going into this, and I wasn't like super excited to watch the second one. Well, I'm glad to have somebody on that train with me. You know, I did not watch the sequel right away. I didn't watch the third one, obviously. I only watched the first part. So when it was getting around time to watch this one, I thought, like, what if I go back and watch part one and part two and part three, and I'll get the whole experience? But I didn't do that. I don't have time for that in my life. So yeah, this this was my first time watching it. Mm, Okay. Well, I watched the first one, then I waited a little while, watched the second one. We recorded the episode for the first one, and I immediately watched the third one after that. And, man, I was I was on it. I was a fiend for a little bit. 
you're right, Ryan. When I watched that first one, I was left with this feeling of like, ooh, I got to see it. I really got to see it. And I, I'll refrain from sharing my opinions on the second film. But what I was really interested to see is knowing now the full story, how does the second film hold up in terms of the little nuggets that you can go back and pick up on? There's a lot of nuance in the dialogue early on in this film before kind of you know, some twists and turns are revealed. And I was really curious to see how, what that integrity looked like. So I honestly expected to feel a little bit differently this time around and feel a little deflated. But what about the rest of you? Chris, I'm on the same boat as you. I didn't think it would have such a hype watching it a second time, but I was really looking forward to watching it this time and picking up and all the little nuances and little, I guess, Easter eggs per se that this movie has. Yeah, I actually... So I know that I slashed the first one, but I didn't love it all the way through until the end. And so once I got to the end of the first one, I was really excited to watch the second one. So I had some pretty high expectations. And I think obviously, if you look at the eras that these movies are set in, the 80s is the most iconic, right? So this feels like it has to be like the best one. So I, I didn't want to hope for too much, but I do think I was prepared for a great movie. I don't know if I got it. Maybe I did. <laughs> That's a weird way to end a sentence. It, it, it really is. Interested to see what, how you feel. So I listened to the first half of the original Fear Street episode of the podcast because I just wanted to hear what everybody thought about it. And as a result, I had really high expectations going into that one. And then definitely the movie did not live up to those. So as a result, this time I went in with super low expectations, which if you know me, means my chances of slashing a movie are actually much higher also, it takes place in the late 70s, and there's a camp vibe. So I was like, you know, if anything has a chance of getting a slash for me in this series, it's probably going to be this one. That's true. But here's the important distinction here. It takes place in the 70s, but since it wasn't filmed in the 70s, it's not like you have a bunch of people who look alike. <laughs> Most importantly. After we did the first part, I honestly expected this to just be more of the same. Like I imagined all three parts would be the same. But you guys kind of sold it a little bit. You, you made it seem like it was going to be necessary to keep watching. Like, oh, just wait. It gets better. So going into this, I, I sat down, hit play, and, and hoped, hoped that it was going to be a massive improvement and that my patience would, would be worth it in the end. But was it? Oh, we're going to find out. Well, it was nice to get a different cast, but it still kept that same teen-targeted dialogue and cookie-cutter social tension from the first part. So while watching it, it kind of felt like the first part, but set in 1978. Really? It was the same character. I guess there was more, but right. they were the same. Yeah, I mean, I the cast from the first movie is in this one, right? Like the, yeah. they're, they're there like bookending it, but in reality, the, mess, the rest of the movie is filled with uh, other people. So it's nice to mean. have it be like, you know, like other actors. The best way to describe how I felt during this movie was when you all are on your dead by daylight freaking tangents and I have no idea what y'all are talking about because I don't play it, but I see how excited and how you guys get scared of it. And at some points it can get really intense and that's exactly how I felt during this movie. Exactly how I felt. And on top of that, I loved the soundtrack to this and i feel like it broke up the intensity slightly but not enough it's funny i have interesting feelings about the the music and the sound effects used in this movie because there is a bit of like a disney sound effect thing that happens in this movie like disney horror in a way that do a lot of like not intense sounds but like childish escalating sounds 
Does that make any sense? I don't know. Score is really hard in a movie. The score definitely had like goosebumps energy. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. That's what I was feeling. And then the music I enjoyed definitely Alexis, but I would say for me, this movie was a lot more enticing than the first one all the way through. Not that I cared about the characters anymore, but what was happening in this movie is more interesting than what was happening in the first one. It doesn't feel as much to me like a bunch of kids running around, even though it is literally a bunch of kids running around. I definitely agree with that, Ryan. I was more invested in the narrative this time around, but I think my overall feeling, but I think the way I can describe my feelings during this movie can be summed up with the word unconvinced because in the first one, they did almost nothing to make it seem like this took place in the 90s, specifically the fashion, was not even trying to be authentically 90s. This one was a little bit better trying to make it look like it was late 70s, but ultimately also unconvincing. There was specifically a top that I know for a fact came from Urban Outfitters, and I saw it and I was like, oh, I've, my friend has that top. Okay, but maybe it's Urban Outfitters vintage. Yeah, but like, I don't know. There's certain movies like, like when you think about House of the Devil and how like convincingly and without even making you question it, convinces you that like this took place in the 70s and this was probably made in the 70s and then you realize like oh wait this was made recently how is that possible they didn't try to commit to that level of authenticity which i understand isn't necessarily the main focus of what they were trying to do but it did in a way take me out of it that's so interesting because i don't think they were trying to make these feel like they're actually in those times it, it almost feels to me like they're taking an inspiration and modernizing it and making it more enticing and more interesting to watch because some stuff in the 70s and 80s sucked. And they're like, hey, we're going to take out the sucky bits. So we're going to make it good. We're still going to make it a little grainy, but it's going to be grainy from 2021, you know? Yeah. And that's something I really enjoyed about watching this movie the first time around because it actually felt very 70s to me. And look, am I here knowing what's an Urban Outfitters catalog? Absolutely not. So it doesn't distract me. Because these characters feel real. The fashion makes sense to me. I don't need to think that hard. It's also a fucking summer camp. So it's not like I'm looking out for people, you know, thinking about the fashion from like the 60s, between the 60s and 90s, or like bell bottoms or really intense like 80s neon or anything like that. The wardrobe is not a thing that I have to worry about. But what really did it for me in this movie the first time around was how emotional it can be in the sense of doing a better job of explaining how shitty it is for Shady Siders. Because I think this movie does a really good job of showing that no matter how good you are, sometimes terrible things just happen to you. And I think the scale at which it happens in this movie is way more intense than in the first movie. It feels like a bigger deal. It feels more brutal, and I really enjoyed that because this movie shocked me when I first saw it. So you have 1994, and it feels like a teen-friendly movie, and then the brutality you get in this movie and the sexual content you get in this movie felt way more adult than anything that came before it in 1994. So I found myself entertained, intrigued, shocked in some moments, and then also feeling really sad for a lot of parts of it. I feel like Chris and I watched this movie together the second time, even though <laughs> we did not. But I do remember texting you during certain parts. So I have that same feeling that you're having. 
I was surprised at how I wasn't shocked at a few things or a lot of the information that I am getting in this movie didn't hold up to me. But like you mentioned, Chris, I felt a lot more in this and I watched it and I felt surprisingly drained a little bit after watching, especially one scene in particular that you're left with. And it was really disturbing and distraught. And it was just an interesting feeling to walk out when the first time I watched this movie, I was like, hell yeah, this movie freaking rocks. And then this I'm left with a different, not as joyous viewing, but still can appreciate the movie for the different viewings I did have. I'm very intrigued because I don't know what would leave you drained and emotional after watching this. Ooh. Okay. I think this is going to be interesting. So when we talk about the perspectives we come at movies with on this podcast, right? A lot of our upbringings and backgrounds and our lived experiences shape how we receive things, right? I think Alexis and I have something in common that influences how we feel about the intensity of this movie. And I think that's what it is. So I'm curious. I might be wrong. Let's see in the second half. Uh, I have a I have a prediction. Well, I, I just want to add on to this, Chris, because that's the thing that honestly surprised me the most about this movie, the intensity. It has an insane body count. Numerically, we'll talk about it in a bit, but it just like really felt like fast paced when it when it's time for killing, it's time for killing. Like left and right people dying, and I was not expecting that at all. And the intensity of the kills is super high as well. I agree. And that's actually what I enjoy about this movie the most is the way it takes the energy from the end of the first and carries it into this because it's not the same as the first. Like the energy that you feel in this, the intensity, it's not there in the first one and it's here. Everything after, spoiler alert for the first one, bread slicer kill, (laughs) everything after that, it's, we're here. We're on 10 from there on out. And that goes through the second movie. And I was very happy about that in this because that is what i was missing in the first half of the first one yeah no kidding the intensity in this is outrageous and one of my biggest surprises was how much this felt like our birthday episode from last year except obviously much more professional that the scene in the cabin kitchen reminded me of the scene in our anniversary episode where reina and vivica killed the chef how do you remember that because we were there together ryan (laughs) i've never remembered anything ever in my life i will say though that Something that surprised me is how much this movie got me kind of invested in Fear Street as like a universe. Whereas the first one, I was like, "Ah, I don't give a shit about these characters or any of their lore. After watching the second one, I was like, okay, I kind of give a shit about these characters and the lore. I'm a little bit more into it now that I've seen the second one. Uh, But something that also disappointed me is there's a character in this who is played by an actor that is very gay. And maybe if you don't have gaydar, this didn't trigger you. But the whole time I was like, no, gay, no, not kissing girls, you're gay. And I couldn't, couldn't look past this in any capacity. I then looked up this actor just to, you know, confirm my own intuition. And the first photo I saw, I was like, yep, gay. And I sent it to Chris. So something like that is something that distracts me personally. Let the men have range. (laughs) Listen, I love that. And, you know, it's kind of annoying because, like, people are always like, oh, straight straight actors shouldn't play gay characters because it's... Like, they're not convincing, and I totally agree. I'm almost never convinced when a straight man plays gay. But also, it kind of works both ways. I'm not often convinced when a gay man plays straight either. I think you're thinking about it too hard. It ain't that serious. Let the record state that Paris's views are strictly his own and uh, not reflective of the rest of the members of Hacker Slash. <laughs> Especially Chris. <laughs> 
I'm very different. Paris, I have to agree with you about caring about this universe so much more now in the second movie. Because the first movie, I definitely spent most of the time thinking, there's no way these two cities are real. I don't care about them at all. I do have to say, I don't care about the witch still. I don't care about the whole Seraphir thing. I know that's literally the basis of the story, but it doesn't matter to me anymore at all. I agree. I completely agree. This whole lore isn't like my favorite. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. A very loaded mm from Chris, really. Mm. (laughs) At this section, I have to say. I can't wait for us to get to the third film because I also did not give a single shit about the Seraphir situation until I saw the last movie, and it all comes together so perfectly that I actually cared about the Seraphir bit. Yeah, I have faith in that. I have faith that we'll get there. I haven't watched that one yet so that I didn't ruin my review here of this one. With that being said, as intense as this movie is, it is not the slightest bit frightening to me. I'm not even a little bit scared, although camp as a whole in this movie is a little bit scary. There's a lot of weirdo things going on at this camp that never happened at any camp I went to. But the killer... Not scary. Just, you know, regular watching people die on screen, you know? Oh, the way Max's eyes just opened up real wide when you said that. I know. I loved that. So here's what I'll say. Obviously not scary to me. Not at all. It's ridiculous. But um, if you find the idea of an axe murderer inside Riverdale being scary, you'll be scared. Because that's what this felt like. Another CW production. And then they added in a killer. Um, No. <laughs> Which is also my favorite kind of uh setting and type of movie, FYI, but no. Oh, Here's so the thing, true. I I no longer perceive the CW as a disrespect because honestly, there's a lot of shit on the CW I like, so I'm not even mad at it, right? I'm not even mad at it. However, I will say this movie is not frightening, but it is intense. But there were moments where I was deeply concerned and heartbroken for the people who bite the dust in this movie. Because it was this is purely a movie where just about nobody who dies deserves it. And it's hard to watch. Yeah, I'm really excited to unpack that a little bit in the gore. I love that you're excited to unpack that. Excited to unpack. <laughs> yes, I found it disturbing, intense, and mostly that has to do with gore and or kills, like you mentioned, Chris, that are two characters we truly care about. Um, but honestly, it wasn't scary. I think the look of the killer in this movie is quite frightening. And the way that they move in this movie is kind of frightening, too, but definitely not scary. I will buy one ticket for the not scared train. I'd like to buy a ticket. Or what is scary is the idea that that guy could have been dating Cindy Berman, because that's unrealistic. <laughs> I literally said to my boyfriend, is it wrong that I have a problem with the fact that we're supposed to think that this is a hot guy, quote unquote? And then I realized that they were all sitting together at the loser's table, and I was like, oh, okay, never mind. But I will say, in keeping with, you know, Alexis, you just mentioned the look of the killer and how he is frightening. I love that they paid homage to Sackhead Jason. Love that because that's one of my favorite types of Jason. And if you've listened to the show for a while, you know that I loved you know, the town that dreaded sundown and the phantom killer of Texarkana. Obviously don't love that guy, but the aesthetic of it, I find really uncomfortable and really disturbing. Just a blank slate. I think that's why I like Michael Myers so much. It's like this blank canvas to which to project your fears. Love the burlap sack on this. And 
while this movie pays homage to so many other horror movies, I'm totally okay with that because I think within the Fear Street universe, this felt really fresh in how it differentiated itself and separated itself from the first film. I agree with that 100%. It feels like home somehow. And Chris, I think I might have texted you this. If I didn't, I was definitely thinking of it in my head. I was like, this is exactly what I would want of a 70s, 80s slasher in 2000s. It feels familiar. It feels like a Sunday where you're wrapped in your blanket, eating some popcorn that is my favorite home style, the best kind by Pop Secret. Hey, I had some sea salt popcorn. Yeah, it's like sitting there with some popcorn and enjoying a good movie. It just felt homey to me watching this somehow, randomly. I saw Paris's face. Paris, I'm not saying that this movie is original, but I am saying that I'm glad it wasn't just a straight up rinse repeat of the first and it managed to distinguish itself. I just think it's generous to say that this movie is original within the three movie franchise that it exists. <laughs> did I say that it was original? I didn't. <laughs> I said that it distinguished itself. Yes, it definitely did do that. For me, it felt like movies we have reviewed throughout time, put in a blender and spit out with nothing extra added to it. Guess what? You know? I'm going to break it down for you real quick. Every movie we review from here on out, it's every other movie put into a blender and spit out, oftentimes without something spicy in it. Same, same, but different. I think we are very generous here when we talk about originality. And unless we're like pooping on a movie as a whole, like it's a universal hack, we're all like, um, I think it's some originality. Like, no, this movie's not original. Let's keep it a buck. Like, I feel like the first Fear Street was more original than this Fear Street. I could, I could see how you would feel that way because this one, I think of like three movies that it pays homage to that we've seen and that we've reviewed. And then it's got the underlying current of the whole, you know, Sarah fear thing. But aside from that, I I don't want to give it any originality points. I will give it credit for not being the first part. I mean, I'll agree with Chris on that for sure. But also it is okay not to be original. Some things are not trying to be original, right? This is not trying to be original. This is trying to feel like what you, it's trying to feel like Alexis's Sunday wrapped in a blanket. That's exactly what they're going for. So it's yeah. okay. It's not a negative thing, but it's not original. And here's the thing. The opposite of this is to say we watched, uh, okay, for example, we just reviewed a movie called Trick. Without revealing a lot of the scores for that movie, that movie was something that kind of claimed to be its own thing, but it was just an amalgamation of literally everything else and it felt very cheap. It didn't, re- it didn't recreate anything with some kind of like blended love and care. It just took these things and spit it back out at you. And that's the distinction here, right? Like this movie may not be original in its, in its own like conception, but what it's done with the Fear Street material, the way that it separated itself and rammed up the intensity from the first film in this while also paying homage to all these other horror movies. I think it's enough that it feels a little bit different. Yeah, it's unoriginal, but with love. I will just say that I don't think there is anything from this movie that I will always remember in my mind. Whereas in the first Fear Street, there's at least the one thing that I'll always remember. Now, the thing I think I'll remember most of this movie is the ending. Specifically, a scene between two characters where there's some dialogue exchanged in some very specific circumstances, which I found to be, let's say, off the wall. I think off the wall is a great term for this ending because I found it to be utterly ridiculous. Stop it. No, the the ending, not the not, not like the final moments of the film, but 
almost the entire third act of the film are utterly ridiculous. And there's nothing wrong with being ridiculous. Ridiculous is very entertaining. I just found it to be ridiculous. I might leave this podcast tonight just saying I have a feeling I might walk out of the freaking door tonight. All right. Hold on. Alexis and I are organizing a protest. We're going to walk our asses out. You can't walk out. You live here. <laughs> I do live here. <laughs> the whole attempt to wrap up the story here really doesn't do it for me. Like the the attempt to say, cool, we're done in the 70s. We're moving on to this next section. It's just really... What did you want them to keep killing for days on end? Maybe that's what they do on Friday the 13th. They just keep going. It's just the next day. Exactly. Because no one came. (laughs) That is shocking. I really enjoyed the ending of this movie, both the the wrap-up of things that concur in the 70s and the wrap-up to the actual movie. Because when the final moment in this movie happens, I was like, what the fuck? And then I wanted to watch the third But the end of this was so satisfying, but it also hurt my heart so much. There was a lot happening in this movie that was really, really emotional. And I can't wait to unpack it in the second half with Alexis. But this was so satisfying. There was, you know, one person could have just not done one thing. I think we would have been in a different, completely different circumstance. Uh, I I don't agree 100% with the decision making by one person. But I really, really loved this ending. I guess I am now trying to analyze what Mac and Ryan were saying. So I'm interested to see when we probably talk about this in the second half, what the third act entails for you guys. Where, cause you know how there's the ending ending and then there's the ending. So it essentially has two endings. So to me, I'm just wondering which one you are talking about. I, I enjoyed both of them. So there's a point that we'll break down when we can talk about spoilers, but I I think it's probably earlier than you would imagine that I thought this is ridiculous. I hope I don't have to go protest because I hope it's not when I think it is. I don't know. I might get my feelings really hurt tonight, but I it's not the first time, so I'm just going to stand up for myself tonight. I'm going to tell you that. All I can say is that this is shaping up to be a great episode. Now let's go ahead and start making our way to our ratings. Before we get there, Alexis, how many people died? In this movie. We had a solid 22 bodies that we did see in this movie. So lots of killing. And what about the animal report? Somehow the animal report is all good. Nothing to worry about. We're chilling. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get into our ratings then. Fear Street Part 2, 1978. Was it a hack or a slash? I'll jump into this because Alexis made a reference that I want to pick up on, and that's Friday the 13th. So I actually somewhat enjoy watching some of the Friday the 13th movies. I've seen a bunch of them. It's got an iconic killer, annoying characters, you're rooting to get chopped up, and that good old nostalgic feeling of a film matching the era in which it was released. This movie obviously nods its face off to Friday the 13th and other films, but it adds in its witch story to some sort of end that I just don't see or appreciate. Maybe it's just not yet, like Chris mentioned. Uh, I don't feel like watching this gave me anything I couldn't get from Friday the 13th, Sleepaway Camp, or The Burning. And because of its superfluousness, it's a hack. I guess an obvious reading for me would be a slash. This movie gives me everything I love about an 80s slasher with the technology in the 2000s. And I love it. I love the colors in this movie. I love the antagonist in this movie. There's just so much that I enjoy 
Mac, I do agree with this witch thing, but to me, I wasn't really focused on that. I understand it was intertwined into this movie, but seeing as I've seen all three movies, I have some sort of pretense on it, but um, if I'm even just looking at this movie as a whole, I just love what it does with these characters. I honestly think I may cry in the second half talking about a few scenes, which I'm going to try not to, which is not like me. So that's why I know this movie did something that honestly no other horror movie has done for me. If you want to cry, we'll cry together. Uh, We might have to cry together. (laughs) Well, I certainly won't be crying. And I... I can't even imagine this movie having made me feel emotions because it certainly didn't make me feel anything. With that being said, it is a slash for me. I think this is a good movie. I was really excited when I finished watching it. I really, really want to see the third one. This one gave me a lot more that I needed than the first one did. I liked the intensity that we get because it's not like just a lame camp movie, right? It's lame camp movie from the late 70s, but in 2021. So we get kills and we get a lot of them and we get intense kills. And I do have to just throw out there, someone earlier said like they were unsold on all of this. And I align with that. I think there's a lot of these characters that are trying to tell me that they are a thing or they care about a thing or they had X and Y relationship And the whole time, the acting in this movie, I'm just like, I don't think so. I don't care. I don't believe you. But fortunately for this movie, my investment is rarely due to how much I like characters because I very rarely like characters. And not that I hated them here. I just didn't believe them very much. That, the witch thing, again, it's just the whole witch thing is like a side plot to this great camp horror movie. And so... It's a slash for me. Right now, as I'm reviewing it, I feel like I'm remembering all the negative things about it. But in the moment, when I think about how I felt watching this, I was stoked and I loved it so much more than the first one. And the first one was a slash. So I have to give this one another one. So I came into this movie with low expectations because the first one did not do very much for me at all. And I can say that this movie is definitely better than the first one. I have not seen lesbians spend this much time in a cave since the last time I watched The Descent. Were they lesbians? Probably not. Was I waiting for them to kiss the whole time? Yes. God forbid girls be friends. They were down there forever, right? They were stuck. What do you mean? (laughs) Hey, they did pose them in a way that made it seem like they were going to kiss. Their faces were four inches apart. I'm going to be honest. I never got a single whiff of lesbian vibes there at all. And I'm going to take that as accurate because I trust your lesbian radar more than my own. I would hope so. With all of that being said, this movie like the first, has so much goosebumps energy. This feels like an R-rated movie for kids that are tweens and like they can't go to the theaters to see an R-rated movie right now, but they can watch like a butt and hear the word fuck a couple times because it's on Netflix and it's already in their house. It felt juvenile, especially with the music that you were referring to earlier, Ryan. The score is very like teen hijinks like do 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 antics i know i mentioned the fashion before but this movie like really didn't even try like i don't even think they googled what was going on in 1978 because at one point a character says oh you read carrie as if the movie had not already been out for two years and it was much more likely that someone had seen the movie than read the book it also has like 15 emotional breakthrough dialogue scenes and by the third one i was just like oh my god i don't care yes so this movie's getting a hack for me now i will say i watched the little bit at the end that showed the third one and i was like you know what 
the third one looks even better than this. So maybe by the time we get to part three, I'll give it a slash. But at this point, it's Hack City for me. It's so harsh. You can just have a good time. I feel like this movie is the equivalent of you telling me to have a good time. Uh, absolutely. Okay. So it's no secret. I love an axe wheeling maniac. I love a good summer camp slasher. I'm all here for it. While I may have disliked points in the Friday the 13th franchise, overall, if you put a killer in a camp, I'm probably going to enjoy the movie. And I enjoyed this movie. I really, really was taken aback by how much less juvenile this movie felt in comparison to 1994. I was absolutely shocked by that. But more importantly than the crazy intense kills we get is not bread slicer, but the amount that we see acts going into faces and heads felt very intense to me. Beyond all of that, the core of this story is the dynamic and relationship of sisters. And so many moments of that broke my heart. And so many moments of looking at who the victims in this movie are broke my heart what i think this did really well was fix an issue from the first movie which is everybody talks about how bad shady side is but is it really like what's going on whereas in this you have the tragedy of life extinguished even though they feel like they're in a place that can be considered neutral and you see that it really is just this like indiscriminate doesn't matter who you are if you're a shady sider shit's going down and that is just really heartbreaking for some moments in this movie but what i love more than any of that is the perfect way this movie captures that late 70s nostalgia even though this movie doesn't feel like my favorite 1978 movie halloween it still does enough to feel like I'm going back in time and I'm clearly separated from today. I'm clearly separated from the 90s. And that's enough to satisfy my little slasher enthusiast heart. So with that, it's getting a slash. And even better than that, Fear Street Part 2, 1978, has earned three slashes and two hacks. Now you can find this movie streaming on Netflix. Overall, it sounds like we'd recommend it, but join us in the second half so we can unpack the trauma together. See you in a bit. Are you planning to waste your entire summer begging your parents for money to spend at the mall? Pack your bags and head out on a 12-week adventure to Camp Nightshade. Soak up the sun from Reveille until lights out. Swim in the crystal clear waters of the Midwest's finest man-made lake. And learn the survival skills that will keep you alive when a possessed, axe-wielding killer descends upon your cabin. Skills like cover and concealment, staying calm under pressure, fashioning a weapon from common household goods, using the strength in numbers to increase your likelihood of living through the night, and more. So don't waste months trying to thrive in some dingy arcade. Survive at Camp Nightshade. Welcome back, folks. You are now entering the spoiler zone for Fear Street Part 2, 1978, which has earned three slashes and two hacks. We have a lot to get to here, but before we get into the specifics of our ratings, we have the matter of summer camp deaths to get to. Now, Alexis, what's the gore score for this movie? Oh, this movie is pretty high. What I appreciate about this movie, though, it does a lot differently in the gore. 
for instance, so that I feel like 70s, 80s slashers are, you know, filled with movies that are about characters you essentially don't care about, or they're just filled and stocked with just bodies. Like we've definitely seen slashers that have way higher body counts than 22. So I think here, which is what I love about this franchise is you're given these characters that you truly care about. Um, at least I did. And I think what makes it stick is you have the scenes where they're being killed. And to me, they're more terrifying. Specifically, I don't want to say it's my favorite kill, but teenager Cindy's death. So, you know, oh gosh, I, I don't even know, want to describe this. I might cry, um, a little bit, but I felt so much and was able to resonate with her a lot. And I think, feeling that and then seeing her death it was like excruciating besides it was probably one of the most goriest scenes i've ever seen but like not terrifying way like terrifying is just like unrealistic unexpectable this is just like someone being stabbed and yeah i'm not sure if the blood goes flying i don't know i watched enough 48 hours uh to know that it might look like that it might not but just the brutality and then you're seeing ziggy next to her and they're just both you know spitting up blood and it's just like so gruesome and terrifying i don't know if i know chris probably felt the same way in the same yeah so growing up the youngest of five kids i have Two sisters who I love and admire and who are my heroes and we've never really had an argument before and the bond between sisters is so special and this movie preyed upon that within me and to see the tension in their relationship early on and to see the pain in each other's eyes and then to go back to the beginning watching this a second time to hear Gina saying I can't let her die I won't I love her. It's like you see that moment and, and, you know, and see Berman's eyes, right? Where she's like, I loved my sister too, but I didn't, like, I was shitty to her right up until then. And to see them both dying there in that moment together, it was emotionally devastating for sure. I think lacking a sister relationship in my life is truly what defines my character for who I am as a person. <laughs> like, it's really something I missed out on in life and truly has not unimpacted me in any moment. So that scene in the end, Alexis, is the thing that I'll remember the most because those two sisters were absolutely gutted and still somehow having a lot more of a conversation than I would think two people that dying could have. And I was like, how are they still talking? They're both so dead right now. And it just struck me as odd. And I was kind of giggling during that scene because I didn't really attach myself to those two characters emotionally. And that's where we're different. Absolutely. Because I'm thinking I would want to say something to my sister, even if it hurt, even if my lungs are punctured. Like, I, I'm going to cry right now. But I wouldn't want my last words to be some of the things that Ziggy and her sister were saying back and forth to each other. But, like, the death of it all, you know? And it also felt like they were talking while still actively being killed. So I was just kind of like, oh, they were. how are we having this intimate moment while being stabbed? But it's also the acknowledgement of things are over, right? So it's like, what are you going to do with your last few moments of consciousness? You're not going to win this. You're not going to fight this off. They're choosing love for each other for the first time in their lives. Cindy has tried to be a role model and she's tried to express her love in a particular way. Ziggy has resisted that love in a lot of ways. 
And they're for the first time, they're seeing each other and being there with each other in, in a moment. And I think that is a really interesting parallel from the first type of love we have between two women in the first film. And this is like completely platonic, a familial love. And it shows just like how powerful that connection is. And it was really, really hard to watch that. Paris, I'm just going to be straightforward here. That scene went to a place for some people to a dark place that we don't have access to. We're not allowed there. True. They, we're not cool enough to be a part of that. So me and you are just watching like two people get killed and we're like, wow, you're really talking with an axe inside of you? Yeah. That is not what Alexis and Chris got out of that moment, evidently. Truly? Okay. I'm going to be real. When I was younger, I was affected by horror movies in, in two ways. One, I watched the Amityville Horror and thought you know, that I was going to end up getting possessed and killing my family. So I was like riding my bike one day in the driveway, crying with tears on my face away from my family. So I was so scared that I was going to hurt them. And then another time I had like a nightmare about Michael Myers. And this is all when I was like around like maybe seven years old. But I watched a different movie. It may have been like Race with the Devil. It's like a 70s culty movie. And I had a dream when I was living in Texas. There's like a home invasion. I had been like sneaking out outside of my house to try to escape, but I looked into our like garage window and I saw my sisters being brutally murdered. And I will never forget how vivid it's like this image is fucking burned into my my mind of seeing my sisters who I love so much being just torn apart with like blood all over them. It's fucked up. Nothing it's never happened again, thankfully. That's not a dream that I think I could my soul could ever take again. But to imagine that, to imagine someone who you've been through with so much in your life and to see that, like the way that like Cindy and, and Ziggy have this in that moment together, uh, I, it's devastating. Well, speaking of devastation, my favorite kill is completely different from that, but it does have to do with it because I was devastated by the first time Tommy runs into a room with an axe and just starts chopping people in the head. And we get full on axe to the head in this movie. Like, not a little bit, not implied he hits somebody and then you see them falling off screen. Like, this man is chopping heads. And I was not prepared for it in this movie. I feel like I should have been after the bread slicer. But when that happened, I truly sat up in my seat and said, what? And then things got crazier and crazier. Yeah, so I'm going to be real. The as, as much as Alexis and I were just bonding a moment ago about the emotional devastation that is Cindy and Ziggy dying, my favorite death is not really my favorite death mechanically, but the one that also hit me really, really hard. And that's Jeremy's death. And he's the first camper that gets killed. And Jeremy was just there like offering refreshments, some games. He's a sweet kid. He gets fucking made fun of. And I connect with that on so many levels. There was this moment that's very Revenge of the Sith. It's very, there's too many of them, Master Skywalker. What are we going to do? And like this little kid, this little child is looking up to his hero, to his guardian, to his protector for help. And he's about to get cut down. And ooh, if, if this movie hit different, starting with that death, Arnie's death, real cool. Axe to the face, dope. I'm here for it. It's a slasher. Jeremy, not cool at all. I was uh, I was a big fan of all the like teenager deaths, but Jeremy's Jeremy's hurt. I did like though that when they chose to have like younger campers getting killed, they would cut away, so you didn't actually see it like striking them. That was a good choice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
What I did like seeing, though, was they had a couple good decapitations in this movie, one of them being Gary's. So that was, I mean, of course, let's go back. Tommy, obviously a big one getting decapitated with a shovel. But I think Gary was more unexpected for me, but also expected because when we get an axe murderer, typically you would think of like they're going to swing it and it's going to like chop things off. And that happens a couple times, but generally Tommy is like swinging into the middle of someone's face, which is kind of wild or like down their chest. And this was, I think, one of the first kills where it, it, it felt like what we were expecting to see, like, oh, axe, strong, swing, head on the ground. There you go. Boom. Decapitation done. Or maybe an arm or something. But in this case, it was just like, that's what I was here for. I think I was also here for that as well, Mac, because after the first kill with Arnie, for some reason, when I saw it, the three axes, the like, he gets hit in the face three times with an axe. And each time I was like super aware of the CGI. Like, I feel like there were a couple of frames where it moved like independently from the actor. And I was kind of like, oh, that's not the best effect. But from that point forward, like every axe wound looked like a full CGI like copy paste kind of thing to me. And I was kind of disappointed by that. But I think the decapitations were a little bit more effective with their CGI effects. Now, even though the CGI didn't necessarily do it for me, I think my favorite kill had to be from Joan because she died wearing a really iconic look, which is just a denim jacket and some white cotton panties. And if I were ever to be killed at a camp with it by an axe murderer, it would be in the same exact outfit. So true. That is your look. I mean... You have to have something on under the short, 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 shorts. Exactly. Do you? Plus, she had just gotten laid, which is like really the best way to go. To put your underwear back on? I mean, I guess so. <laughs> well, I'm done talking about panties. Um, Let's go back to the gore. So I found it super interesting. The way these movies were filmed, they were filmed back to back. And actually, the second one, so this uh, part two was filmed last. So Lee Janiac. She admits that the fast-paced scheduling of shooting these films back-to-back pretty much gave her this sort of punch-drunk feeling for all this dark material. So the only answer in this one was more blood, more blood, more blood. She said, every time we had a scene with a killer and attacked, I was just like, more blood, more fucking blood, let's do this. And there was no negotiation. Everyone was just like, all right, we're going to do it, which I thought was fantastic. (laughs) It's like it was you, really. Yes, I I can relate to her. (laughs) Honestly, I watched a few like panel interviews of the cast of the Fear Street films and her and hearing the way her mind was working around creating the world of Fear Street. So good. I will drop a few links in the show notes to a couple really good ones, but it sounded like this was a really collaborative, really special production process. Yeah, definitely. What really surprised me, and I don't know if it surprised you guys, even going to part one was that these were rated R. Because they don't seem like they are. That bread slicer do be rated R. That's for sure. I guess, yeah. Yeah, I think it's not surprising considering the language and the extent of the violence, right? Like why it's rated R. But I don't think like the rest of the movie feels rated R. Speaking of language, Alexis... So it's actually 45 times fuck is said in this, which is interesting because that's probably about how many times it's said in a day. <laughs> I feel like it's very intense for a movie. I don't really need to hear it that many times. And I, I do understand that kids be saying stuff just to say it, but like, oh my God. Honestly, it just washed over me. Didn't even strike me as odd this time. Same, which is how we know that we have such filthy mouths. 
Exactly. It was very fluid in the movie. And I thought it was really interesting. My last bit of facts was Lee actually snuck into a Friday the 13th movie and she was so thrilled by the experience and how that fear of the movie and just, you know, sneaking in instilled in her that she wanted this movie to be rated R as well. So I thought that was a really cool tidbit. I mean, you do not have to sneak into your living room to go watch this movie. So maybe not quite the same, but I get the inspiration. <laughs> Counterpoint. Sometimes kids get sent to bed while their parents are watching movies, and then they creep by the banisters of the stairs and try to watch the movie, too. Yeah. <laughs> kids by the name of Chris. Didn't have stairs growing up. Max kids ain't watching this because he ain't watching Fear Street. <laughs> yeah, The rated R intensity of this film, it's a really interesting thing to consider because this isn't rated r in the way that we've seen other slashers once you start getting to that violence it's a sight to behold and i think part of what makes the violence feel that much more intense is that it's under the shroud of darkness just about the entire time and what i really think sells a lot of this movie is actually just the aesthetic of camp nightwing and the openness of this space this feels like a gigantic summer camp right this feels like a really authentic set that I can get behind. Sometimes, I don't know, not necessarily with the burning, not necessarily with Sleepaway Camp, but these other like knockoff camp slasher movies that you've seen, maybe like on Tubi, they tend to feel like a very closed in set. It tends to feel like a, all right, we just recycled like maybe two cabins tops for this whole production. And this one didn't feel that way. And I think the lighting the way they illustrated their darkness in this movie, when you're going from grabbing the flashlights, trying to search for the campers when shit's going down, all the way down to Cindy and Ziggy making it out to the tree. This movie is beautiful. Chris, I agree with you, but I do have to mention that I, it was almost like too big in a sense that like the whole like underground witch situation, I felt like they were down there for what seemed like miles of walking through a maze and and everything and i didn't really understand where they were and then for them to be under the bathrooms was just kind of a weird like separation for me i I couldn't quite mesh the two thoughts together because i think the camp felt really real like you said and that bathroom actually leads to one of my favorite visual elements which is really weird but it's kind of a general feeling for fear street no yes And it is the way they choose to make some things not feel as gross as they could be. Like Fear Street as a whole so far has almost had this little bit of like a fantastical element to it for me. Like some things are just not as real as they could be. And being inside of the hole that is an outhouse truly could have been the most disgusting thing anyone has ever seen on film, ever. And it wasn't. And it's those little things that I really appreciated. Thank you for not just putting poop on a rock and putting (laughs) it in my face. But also, it was poop on a rock. And I feel like we really didn't get the full disgustingness of people climbing out of a toilet. Yeah, we definitely didn't. Think about Alice riding up on that bucket, which... Had she not had one leg injured, I feel like she could have used the rope to climb up a little bit more and kind of progress the whole situation. Yeah. 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 But to know that she had that open ass wound on her ankle, that bone popping out. (laughs) 
Oh. Skidding down the rocks of poop. You know that had she lived, she would have lost that leg. To gangrene. Oh, for the rest of the movie, all I thought was, oh my God, Cindy smells worse than anything's ever smelled in life. Okay. I just really appreciate the fact, yes, when Cindy died and told her sister she loved her so much, she smelled like doo-doo, okay? (laughs) Yeah, that is honestly adding insult to injury. Yeah, it is. That's adding sepsis to injury. But like that, that like red, like, I don't know, fungusy type of situation. I don't know. They just did some really interesting things. And that being such a disgusting scene was is actually quite intriguing because of the way they approached it. And that's a thought process they took through this whole movie and this whole series in in my eyes that I really enjoyed. I loved seeing Cindy covered in poop. <laughs> no, it was actually when she was covered in blood. I love that. Mm. I definitely have these, you know, final girl vibes. It it was just like very empowering to see her like that. And it was very reminiscent for me of the main character in Ready or Not and her look and how distraught and all the stuff she went through at the end and see the final product. I just love seeing that and being able to like compare the two. Okay, so I have a question. Might be jumping the gun just a bit, but considering that Cindy gets the full final girl treatment in this movie and she's not C. Berman, how did you guys feel about that? I thought it was completely obvious the entire time that C. Berman was Ziggy. That's just in my eyes. I didn't even consider that they were trying to sell something else because the story is basically about Ziggy. Like the whole thing that she's telling the kids is all about Ziggy. To me, I didn't think that they were trying to mask it in any way. Same. Okay. That's an android answering the question. Yeah. No, because they set it up as like, she's a girl who's haunted by the witch and that's why they're going to her to figure out how she dealt with it. So when they show that Ziggy was the one being haunted by the witch, I was like, oh, okay. So this is Ziggy. But then. Ziggy wasn't the one being haunted by the witch. That's true. It was basically like, it's Cindy's boyfriend, you know? Like, they they clearly set it up to make you think that it was Cindy the whole time. It's C. Berman. Like, normal humans here, the rest of us, Alexis, you and I, assuming Chris as well, we were all on the same page of like, oh, that's Cindy Berman. And definitely there was like a question about it. I would say not being certain is what kept me tied into a good portion of this movie. So I walked into it seeing... Ziggy's character like is, is shown first and seeing the way she was treated felt very much like, okay, Ziggy must be short, like a nickname for something because had her name been something else, right? Like had they pulled a, I'm going to call you by your middle name, but that's really not your first name. And it was a more believable name. Maybe that would have been a more surprising twist, but because it's Ziggy, because it's a nickname, like, okay, that's probably C Berman. But I think They set it up well. Yeah. Because Cindy does get the full final girl treatment. It's not like she's just this, you know, peripheral character. She has honestly the most well-developed arc in this whole movie. And Ziggy, I mean, goes through some shit. And Ziggy lands in a place where she's carrying a lot of grief and regret at the end of this. That she hasn't quite made peace with. But the more I realized it's definitely Ziggy, the more I wanted it to be Cindy. And I think that was like a really interesting thing. I really like, I know that it's maybe not a popular opinion. I think Cindy Berman deserved better. Oh, I don't agree. I'm glad as Ziggy. I was rooting for Ziggy the whole time. I did not buy a th- single line that Cindy tried to sell me. 
Interesting. So my thought process didn't know any of this. And um, honestly, you know, I feel about all of these sort of twists and turns. I just never get them. I'm, I'm with Mac from the beginning. I was like, oh, so she was Ziggy. But then as Ryan pointed out, she wasn't the one possessed by the witch. So I was like, okay, so maybe she actually wasn't. And then I kind of stopped questioning it. But I was just like, so she was Ziggy. And I did think, and this is totally random, but I thought that the girl that played Cindy would have been really well cast to play a young Allison Brie, who was also in Community, like the woman who plays the adult Ziggy. And that's just how my brain works. What a train of thoughts that is. <laughs> Let me bring it back to my favorite thing to look at in this movie. So Chris already mentioned the campground. I, I thought that was like, honestly, one of the best parts of the movie was was the setting. But when Tommy finally gets the mask... That's when it's, it's, it's like seeing Jason get his mask, right? When he gets that, that sack over his head and his look is completed to the killer that we get in part one. I was so happy because in part one, he's super menacing because he is that like blank faced killer and because he's just like large and fast and swinging an axe around. And like when that moment happened where it was like, I'm going to choke you out with this burlap sack. I was like, yes, this is how we get that killer. That honestly was the best part of first of the first movie. That's so true. That moment was really great where it was just like that classic aha moment. Like when they say the title of the movie, but less corny. It was that. Like, oh my God, that's how he gets it. Now you're living on Fear Street. With Sarah Fear. Personally, while the campground was definitely very cute, I definitely preferred what was going on under the campground with that enormous cave. It reminded me of like a better version of the cave from Leprechaun 2. And the more they explored it, I was like, you know, this is kind of fun. They were definitely there a lot longer than I expected them to be. But every time they were down there, we got something new from the cave and I wasn't mad about it. Leprechaun 2 is such a great parallel. And I hadn't even considered that. But it makes so much sense. Maybe, canonically, this is the same fucking place. Because clearly you run run down one tunnel, you're going to end up right back where you started. True. Would this movie be better with a leprechaun? I don't know. If only they had that map. Speaking of map, when they finally realize that they're under the commode, like one, what a great moment. They're back at camp. We don't have to see this anymore. Uh, but two, like realizing that was their way out and then like trying to get out of it was my like favorite scene in the movie. Really? Yes, because we get so much packed into that little, that little period of time. We get Tommy running in and, you know, dispatching my favorite kill. So that was cool. Right. Um, but we also get a headless body falling down onto the girls, them slipping down the wall and like feeling more stuck and more helpless, which was also great. And we get to see a girl knock somebody out. So that was cool. Yeah. I actually forgot that that even happened. You know, don't you think they would have known they were walking up to the area that was a toilet, you know, by the fragrance. Yeah. It was just very intense. Everything happening there was very intense. I think they were put off by the smell of a quivering bladder. I do appreciate the underground scenes, but my favorite scene is definitely, and it's a sequential sort of thing. Tommy is first hacking at this door, very reminiscent of Jack in The Shining, which I am obsessed with. I was like, that's a good nod. I'm giving this movie a slash for sure. No matter how trashy it would have ended (laughs) up being, but it didn't. And continuing with that scene, I appreciate when Cindy is also underneath the, I guess, mess hall it is. And Tommy is also in the same building, but somehow the music is kind of diluting the sound that Cindy's making to get out. And then also what's going on between Ziggy and Tommy to wrap up that scene. 
I love when Tommy gets the sack head on. It was just a, you know, nice cherry on top of a great movie. And I just appreciated that so much. So I'm going to go the inverse of that. And it's going to be the beginning of Tommy's rampage. The subtle realizations that you have, obviously, you know, shit's going down when the, when Nurse Lane is trying to kill Tommy. He's like, I don't know what's going on, but I suddenly feel real funny. And you realize that he's walking around with the flannel of the killer from the first movie. You're like, all right, it's going to be this guy. It's going to be him. When he finally is just all zoned out and grabs that axe and kills Arnie and the realization and the chaos for Cindy and Alice in that moment. And they're just hauling ass trying to get away from him and the rocks are crumbling and they realize that he's still alive and he's on his way out and you get him emerging from the ground. It's just a villain unleashed in a really, really cool way, a devastating way. Very shortly thereafter, it was almost like its own climax in a really interesting way. Chris, that is one of my favorite scenes as well. I think mine goes a little bit further than that, which takes us into the the rest of the beginning of his rampage through the actual camp that I really enjoyed. It came a little bit later, but I love that. I'm going to go with a little bit of a silly favorite scene besides that. And it's right after the nurse is taken away in the ambulance and then you kind of get this big zoom out of the camp and then a song starts playing and the whole mood changes because it's very like somber for a moment there. Everybody's kind of freaking out. And then we get Don't Fear the Reaper playing. And I talked about this in the first episode that we did for Fear Street and I just have to talk about it again. Okay. Because this movie does things on purpose. And one of those things is like using songs intentionally. That song again, Don't Fear the Reaper creepy vibes, okay? There's a couple other times in this movie where the song lyrics are very intentional. However, I personally feel, because in this movie, they start that song with someone hitting a cowbell. I personally feel that they're referencing the more cowbell skit from SNL, and it it just sticks with me in this movie. And I don't know why I'm so stuck on it. I don't know why it excites me so much, but it just does. And I just like to think someone shooting this movie was like, oh my God, have y'all seen that skit from SNL? Let's reference that and see if somebody gets it. And maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm making up something that doesn't exist, but I got it. So funny story. It turns out the director was like, you know, they're filming the scene, they're getting it ready. And, you know, they, they're like doing it. And okay, what, what music do we need? And, and they get it going. And then she was like, wait, I got a fever. And the only cure is more cowbell. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's not a real story at all. But I love that you got hung up on that for so long. It makes so me so happy. I mean, it's been weeks at this point that I've been like stuck on this thing that just excites me to no end. Wait, Ryan, just to confirm, you know, the song Don't Fear the Reaper is made famous by the movie Scream, right? Uh, you know that the song was famous before that, right? Yeah, but like as far as horror references go, they totally stole it from screen. Sure, that's fine. That's fine. I, I'm I'm stuck on this. The cowbell. Okay, got it. <laughs> Did you watch the video? There's more. Ca- <laughs> it's because they start it with the cowbell. The kid rings a cowbell or whatever. It's not really, but it sounds like a cowbell. And then the song plays, and it just feels like they have to go together. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. But I also want to take this as a shining example of when lyrics in a song in a horror movie works to accentuate things and it did not fucking work for me in the conjuring when that one random ass song was just inserted in the middle of setting up the house with the ghosts i rest my case i still stand by that song choice i felt like it definitely matched the vibe at the time in the conjuring chris but something i definitely agree with you on is the idea of like a villain unleashed in this movie and that's definitely showcased in my favorite scene which is one of the first scenes we get in the 
flashback to the late 70s at this camp, and that's where we have Ziggy being bullied by Sheila and, like, the rest of her gang. The scene starts off with Ziggy running through the woods and then absolutely just getting clotheslined out of nowhere by that dude, and I was not expecting that at all, so I laughed very hard, and it also made me pay attention, and I was like, okay, wait, I was distracted, and now I'm I'm back in it. And then the scene where the, she's kind of, like, tied to this tree... They're like burning her arm and Sheila's being like an absolute monster. It reminded me of like all the stories my mom has shared with me about like what bullying was like for her in like the 70s and how like evil and sinister kids were back then. And I was like, okay, this is like a really dark situation for this girl. And they're like using this like stupid witch storyline to justify the bullying. But ultimately this girl's just being a hateful bitch for some reason, probably because this girl has gorgeous red hair and she's naturally beautiful and she's probably jealous of her. But I was just like, this is a really relatable scene for me. Yeah, the clotheslining to introduce a world of shitty kids feels undeniably 70s, which, again, just really adds the nostalgia and the vibe here. And one of the things I think this movie does really, really well is fill it with a bunch of characters that seem like authentic-ass humans. I think some of the ones we get in 1994, I didn't really have issues with, but I think, you know, we commented on how odd some of the relationships were even though the characters became likable over time. But in this one, I had no trouble believing any bit of it, except for that Cindy would actually go for a guy like Tommy. Yeah, I know we spoke about it in the gore section, but these felt authentic to me. And I really felt for Cindy in particular. You know, she's trying to save money for college, and she's trying to do all the right things and be there for her sister and... And how she gets so mad during certain scenes and goes after Nightwing. And just the look on her face. I'm like, you know, she's a badass bitch. And I love it. Yeah, I like Cindy as she grows. But I would say at least the first half of this movie, I didn't care about anything she was saying. And the fights that they were having, like... And her complaining about, like, her co-camp counselors and just, like, all this stuff, I didn't care. I did like when she bossed up. When she bossed up, she was great. And she was doing something. And she wasn't just going to let things happen. And that I enjoyed. But the beginning, um, I don't know what's wrong with me. Maybe I'm the only one. Maybe I'm not. But I just, I just didn't feel like, oh, my gosh, this girl, she's just trying to be great. And nobody will let her be great because she's from this place. Like, uh, I just didn't care. It felt more told to me than shown. It was one of those situations where it's like, hello, I tried to do everything by the book because I want a great life. I am the do-gooder. I am the straight arrow. And then they were like, oh, you are a straight arrow. I am the grunge punk. I am the one always doing bad things and smoking the weed and listening to the music quite loudly. And it didn't feel like they really like showed us those characters. They, they have like a little bit of it, but it's kind of the same issue I had with, with the first part where it's like, there's not enough time and we have, we just have to tell you everything because we can't show it, you know, over the course of two seasons. Yeah, exactly. Just like the first one where they're telling us these places are bad. They're telling us these characters are these things. So when they're making up and going through things and growing, it all just feels a little bit like, okay. And perfect example is the future Sheriff Good. Yeah. Ugh. I mean, I can't wait for the third one so we can find out why he why he's named Good. I'm, I'm sure that's got to be brought up because that's like a very 1666 name. Good. I don't know. But it just seems like he's the good guy and his name is literally freaking good. It's ridiculous. And I have feelings about it. But like he's literally like, hey, hey there, buddy. Um, how's it going, deputy so-and-so? Oh, it's going great, future sheriff. Can't wait for you to be my boss one day, wink, wink. 
it's just like when Ziggy first walks up to him and goes, oh, Nick Good, son of Sheriff, blah, 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 basically. And it's just like, okay, we get it. Yeah, thank you. We understand the full context of this character now. Okay, but I think they are very mindful with what they're doing because I did notice an Easter egg where in the 90s slash present time, there's like an ad on TV to like reelect Mayor Will Good. And then later we, in the flashback, realized that Will Good was also a douche at this camp. And I was like, okay, I'm sure that's going to come into play later at some point. So I'm also looking forward to the third one to see how that pans out. But I think a character that didn't necessarily suffer the same fate as you're describing, Mac, somebody who like really earned the experience and reputation and perception that you get from them was Alice. Now, Alice, I feel like, and Chris, this is for you specifically, reminded me a lot of Rizzo from Greece in that she's like a spunky, short-haired girl who like doesn't do the right thing necessarily, but kind of does her own thing, isn't afraid to break the rules, but also has like a much deeper, like heart of gold, like storyline than you would anticipate from a character like that. There are worse things I could do than climb this tower of poo. <laughs> also, Alice's name is Ryan. So shout out to her in real life. Shout out to her indeed. And I don't know. I think I struggled a little bit with Alice. I think she became less annoying as the movie went on. And I didn't dislike her necessarily, but I don't know. As someone who, when I was younger, strived to do the right thing and was honestly burdened by the incompetence around me, I really related to Cindy in this movie. And here's the thing that I like about Cindy. She is trying so hard to operate in a world of such elevated pressure on herself to be a good role model, to rise beyond her circumstances. And eventually she just caves in and gives in to frustration. And, you know, she has her whole arc and, and I totally get that. But I really, really, really enjoyed her from start to her tragic finish. She, I think, was honestly one of the best parts of the movie for me. But the worst part of the movie for me was Tommy Sideburns. <laughs> they were atrocious. You probably may have had a, a little bit of trouble seeing them because his fucking middle part bangs were like over to the side, kind of blending in with them. His little fuzzy sideburns, so gross. Right. But I mean, that my favorite part of the movie, the best part of the movie is Tommy becoming the killer and seeing a killer that has like no emotion in their face because... I'll be honest, I like when we don't get to see the killer. It would have been great had the had the killer in this movie never been shown. But if you're going to show them, if they're like making silly faces while they're chopping people up, it takes away so much, uh, you know, of, of the fear that some people might, you know, get from a movie, but because we got to see him without emotion and completely like no remorse whatsoever, it made for a good killer. And when we get the bag, it's like picture perfect, it's all complete now, but I didn't think I was going to enjoy that happening without a mask or something the entire time. And every time he shows up, you're just like, yeah, he's about to demolish somebody. So that's sideburns and all. Be best part of the movie was was Tommy as the killer. Yeah, Mac, you're so right. That is a great part of this movie. And fortunately tonight, I get to talk about a worse part. And for me, I'm going to go on a little rant here. It is the moment when this movie wants me to believe that a hand was buried under a tree, and then a mall was built around the tree. <laughs> the ground of the tree is still the same ground. There's no foundation of the mall. The ground that is inside the mall in the planter 
is the same ground <laughs> before the mall was built, and that's where the, the the hand is found. That is absolutely the most chaotic thing I've ever seen happen in a movie, and it just doesn't make any sense. It's ridiculous. It, it there wasn't an end. It was not necessary. It didn't lead us anywhere. It did nothing for me. And this is the thing that that adds to the like fantastical parts of Fear Street because they didn't even try to make that realistic. No one vetted that idea. They didn't care at all. It was dumb. Three things. One, I agree. Two, I can't wait to see what you think about the third movie. Oh, God. Third, suspension of disbelief. No, that's beyond that. (laughs) That is beyond suspension of disbelief, bro. That's ridiculous. Because logic comes into play. The disbelief is suspended from that tree. So, because you can start to imagine, like, how did they get the tree into the mall? So, one, like you mentioned, they built the mall around the tree. So it sounds like that mall is going to fall down one day because they couldn't like properly build it. There's no concrete underneath. Right. Or part two. um, So maybe they did a transplant. They took the tree out of the ground and they built the mall and then they put it back into this planter. Well, at some point during the, like the lifting of the tree, maybe a skeleton hand would have fallen out and they'd have been like, Oh, oops, we better stop and then call the police. Option three. That did happen. Skeleton hand fell out and they thought, oh, we'll take it with it just in case. Better put it back. Well, you know, my <laughs> suspension and disbelief, it doesn't really matter. It, it doesn't matter how that hand got there. The tree got there. Any sort of rhyme or reason doesn't matter. I want to be like you. I got a bone to pick with the picking of the bones. You can't tell me that it's any more ridiculous than them finding the fucking skeleton in the first place. It is. The whole fucking situation is just bizarre. And once you're opted into a world where the events of the first movie happen, you're just here for the ride. You know what I mean? The skeleton was at least outside. It was at least in the woods. No matter how shallow a grave could be. Okay? Chaos. 1666 to 1994. I also just think you wanted to say you got a bone to pick with the picking of the bones. I'm pretty sure that's the only reason you said anything. (laughs) Came to me in the moment and I couldn't let it pass. So my WTF moment was definitely when Alice was in the underground tunnels and touched, uh, we decided, a quivering bladder. And I'm just like, what on earth makes you want to touch that thing? (laughs) My wife said the same thing when we were watching it. She was like, well, why would you have done that? That's dumb. Yeah, it was like the most dumb thing I've ever seen. You know, Alice, she's breaking all the rules. She's just a cool kid doing Tylenol. (laughs) Literally Tylenol. Yeah, touching that was ridiculous. And honestly, in this movie, every time someone touches something or bleeds on something that they're not supposed to, it really makes me hate them the most. Someone always has some blood dripping. Like, what is wrong with y'all? I've never dripped blood on anything. Um, hi, I'm Chris, and I'm here to say that I spontaneously get nosebleeds that sometimes can't be controlled, and I have dripped blood on things that I did not intend to. Well, how about you don't drip blood on a witch's remains? (laughs) I think that you at least know when you're in the risky moment of being able to drip blood on something. Here's the thing, though. Sometimes that shit just happens. So I have a a thing where my blood doesn't clot properly, and I would legitimately be at school and spontaneous, like without me sensing it coming on, gushing blood all over my desk. And it wouldn't stop for like half an hour. Or there have been times where I'm driving my car and it's just gushing blood from my nose. It's a really weird specific thing. I don't mind it in this movie because that shit just happens. When it happens, do you make sure to make direct eye contact with somebody and put your hand out like a, like a Jedi? <laughs> like Chloe Grace Moretz's Carrie? No. I just suffer through the bleeding things. 
So one thing that made this movie easier to suffer through for me was the parallels between the two sisters, one of them on the surface level and the other one deep in the cave. We sort of like were flashing back between the two of them and what their storylines were. And it gave me very much like an as above, so below type of vibe in that they were going through similar strifes and experiences while like discovering a little bit more about like what the fuck is going on in two different senses of that idea. And I thought that was a really interesting cinematic parallel that could kind of transcend the general goosebump vibes of this movie. Paris, I hadn't thought about that, but I quite like that idea. And before we move on, I just want to clarify some of the stuff we said earlier. So when I was talking about the ending before the third act that I couldn't deal with, it was the whole witch hand, everything from looking for it the first time, like the whole, when the witch really comes back into this movie is really when I like tap out. That's the ending that didn't work for me, especially when we get to the point of digging in the tree in the mall. So that's the part. I, I assume me and Mac were on the same page about that. That's the third act that I couldn't get on board with. Yeah. So the witch hand having to put it back with the body, realizing the body's not there. And then both sisters dying yet somehow after like 12 stab wounds, Nick good can bring her back to life. Like that's too much suspension of disbelief. And then she's like totally fine when the ambulance is there. She's like, Oh yeah. Like no big deal. We're talking. I'm cool. They got me wrapped up in a cozy blanket. Like I'm going to be all right in the end. But I'm like, dude, she just died from like a bazillion stab wounds. And what did you, what did you do? Paddle her? She didn't come back to life. Come on. She was literally turned into a chicken cutlet and they just were like, ah, you'll be okay. A little CPR. We'll just breathe some life into you. CPR does not bring somebody back from those types of wounds. No, don't fix the holes in your lungs. Well, it's also a place where witches are real. So I don't know what you want from this movie, guys. That's More. True. <laughs> okay, but I live in a world where witches are real. Couldn't they have just gotten around it by like not even worrying about the whole like reconnecting the hand with the body and just having the quivering bladder down below be the witch's remains pulsating and throbbing. And then in the third one, they go back to that. Guess you got to watch 1666 to figure it out, bro. Well, we will very soon. Or just stab her less. So it's more plausible. Yeah. One stab. Or even if they like slit her throat, if he didn't do it hard enough, she would have been still alive afterwards. Right. So that's a thing they could have done. But he stabbed her like literally a bazillion times. Chicken cutlet. With all that being said, I don't see myself watching this movie again, just like the first part. I think I remember enough about it to, you know, watch the third one when we're about to do that. So I'll be okay with that. But I just, it's, I don't think it's a series that I'm going to rewatch later. Also, it's worth mentioning that these movies do include a recap on Netflix. Cause I started this one and I was like, wait, they're going to be like a full recap, not just a, a minute. And yeah, I feel the same way. I had to rewatch this one for the podcast because it had been so long and it's not bad, but it really just didn't do anything for me. I think Alexis, you, this is the kind of movie you'd like to rewatch. Cause it's like a, a fun watch in your eyes. Yeah, definitely. I appreciate the little recaps because it's very reminiscent of Friday the 13th, which I like because sometimes I didn't watch the movie just right after. So, but yes, I would definitely watch this again. I don't necessarily want to rewatch this, but I do think there's a possibility that the third one might gag me so much that I'm like, holy shit, I need to go back and rewatch the first two because of whatever is revealed in that third one. I don't think so. I don't think it's super likely, but I do think it's possible. Well, I'm not here for any of the disrespect thrown at Fear Street. I will be watching this again. Certainly not anytime soon, but. I think I could live in a world where once a year 
I watch all three movies just for kicks and giggles. Maybe nice little summer trilogy action. But I will say one of the things that I've enjoyed about having watched the third film is going back and exploring some of the relationships and dynamics between a lot of these characters. And Paris, I'm looking at you. There's a very specific type of video that I plan to show you. It uh, is very reminiscent of some Twilight shit for me. So once you want 1666, text me as soon as you're done and I'll send you a link. Is it like a lesbian love affair fan cam? Maybe. I'm here for it. Well, while many of you won't be watching this movie anymore, let's see what Mac can at least teach you with fact or fiction. Number one. Now we've discussed that apparently the movie tricked some people into thinking C. Berman was Cindy Berman. I never assumed it the entire film. Whatever. Did you know that they left a hint that she was Ziggy all along? Oh, I'm sure they did. So, fact. I'll say fact. I bet it was in her house. I, too, missed the memo I was supposed to have, but this movie's full of Easter eggs, so I absolutely believe this is true. Yeah, it's a fact. She's got a dog named Major Tom from the Bowie song Space Oddity. Oh, my God. And her name is Ziggy, which is Bowie's temporary stage name, you know, Ziggy Stardust. I actually did think about at least the Major Tom part. I was like, oh, that's a cute name for a dog. But also, how cute would it have been if it was Cindy and she named her dog that as a tribute to her sister? That'd be cute. Also, how adorable was it when she tried to protect Major Tom by putting him in the closet and he was whimpering and she said, I'll protect you. (laughs) Number two. Talking about Ziggy, Jillian Jacobs actually coached Sadie Sink on her mannerisms to make them seem more like the same human being at different ages. Fiction. I feel like there's not that much you see of the one character, the older one, so fiction. I'm also going to say fiction because I feel like this should have happened, but I don't think it did. But I bet it's that Jillian Jacobs watched the footage of the young Ziggy and was like, oh, I'll just act like an older version of that. No, this one is a fiction, but simply because they didn't even meet until the movie premiered. It's Netflix, not surprised. Also remember that they filmed this movie after they filmed the other two movies, so... Oh, they filmed this one last? Interesting. And in the spirit of a three-part movie series, this is our last one. The movie was shot on a few locations that were also used in other films, such as Friday the 13th, Part 6, Little Darlings, and Summer of My German Soldier, but... Did you know that one of those campsites that they filmed it on is considered quite haunted by locals? Okay, first and foremost, way too many details in that question. I have no idea what to go off of. Second, we've all voted the same tonight for all these questions, so I feel like we need to pick a a group vote here again. I was going to say fiction. I'm on board. I was going to say fact. (gasps) Paris. Oh, damn. I mean, like, with that many locations, of course, one of them has to be haunted. Yeah, but he lied. (sighs) (laughs) He lies so much. He does. Okay, fine. I'll vote fiction. And this one's a fact. (laughs) Oh, God damn it. Interesting. So they did film on a few different campsites, but one of them they filmed at Camp Rutledge, uh, which is in Georgia. And supposedly it's haunted by a little boy. Well, that's not that scary. Oh, does he have a porcelain mask on? Does he beat people down with a baseball bat? Wait, do we ever learn what that is? Because I've been waiting. I thought we did learn it in the first one. But most importantly, why do we not ever get more of him? Because he's great. Yeah, I need like the full movie about his origin story who knows we'll see what happens and that's been fact or fiction well there you have it folks fear street part two 1978 has earned three slashes and two hacks now i have a lot to talk about here alexis and i have been feeling some things mac and paris have been feeling different things and remember that the talk doesn't end here by any means we still want to know what things you've been feeling this whole time now keep in mind there are a number of ways you can reach out to us starting with our website hackerslash.live or on our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 
And this one's really important. If you got my more cowbell SNL reference when you watch this movie and you really care about it a lot as well, you can reach out to our hacker slash hotline. You can leave us a voicemail at 757-606-0128 so I can hear your cowbell or visit hackerslash.live to send us an audio message. Or if you enjoy the David Bowie version of The Man Who Sold the World more than the Nirvana version, you can send us an email to feedback at hackerslash.com. Deep cuts. If you've had fun listening to this episode, consider joining the New Blood Drive and becoming one of our patrons. You can visit patreon.com slash hacker slash to earn cool perks for as low as $1 a month. But don't forget, if you decide to join our 3 or $5 tier during the month of October, you'll receive our fourth anniversary Halloween poster. We'll see you next time, folks. And remember, sane people don't chop up their friends. Bye. So this week's free side topic comes to us from one of our patrons, Liz. Essentially, we were inspired by her comment. And what we're going to do is we are going to go around and describe what each castmate would consider to be a slash. And I think we should start with Chris. Obviously. So of course, it's going to be like 80s. It's going to be a slasher. That's super obvious. Something that has um, a deep meaning behind it, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's got to have like some real emotional element that we're all completely unaware of feminist undertones for sure Ooh, lesbians obviously yes hot lesbians oh yeah like blatant or questionable lesbians it's the angst for me (laughs) and of course it must lack a plethora of crappy men that make bad decisions especially in the dad form (laughs) low gore i feel like i was gonna say it has to be nearly bloodless yeah nearly bloodless how can you be nearly bloodless yeah i mean i'm trying to think of like a deep cut because i feel like these are the obvious ones There's probably something else there, but that generally would make a great Chris movie. But also, I feel like the killer has to be like a tall, mysterious man. And they have to have award-winning lighting and color. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is very true. A good score. Tom Savini. (laughs) Tom Savini. (laughs) You missed the synths. Ooh. I feel like that was part of a good score, okay? I tried. (laughs) You did well. You did well. I feel like I am known and understood. But am I really understood to my core? That remains to be seen. Um, I said lesbians. Yes. <laughs> you did. You did. Yeah. And Alexis, they don't have to be hot lesbians. They just have to be there because every bit of representation matters. You're right. I was going for the very surface level. I'm sure it wouldn't hurt if they were hot. <laughs> it's definitely a bonus. It wouldn't. Well, <laughs> speaking of which, for Alexis, it's hot people in blood. So much blood. <laughs> There's some overlap here for Paris as well, but most importantly for Alexis, the blood, <laughs> but she definitely likes a hot a hot cast. Ooh. There also has to be a lot of flashbacks to reference back to what's been happening this entire time, and there has to be a plot so convoluted it doesn't actually make sense. She does like to just be like, nah, just go with it. <laughs> yeah, to the point where you just don't question it anymore. Yeah, yeah. And there has to be an, some sort of scene with gore in it that is completely outlandish considering the rest of the gore in the movie. Like, I don't know, somebody getting turned inside out by a vacuum cleaner, just something that's like so (laughs) insane and gory and like a room full of blood because of whatever happens. Yeah, there has to be at least one kill that we've never seen before. Also, I think we're missing the most important element here, which is revenge. Oh, yeah. Oh, I was going to say a dick, but (laughs) sure. A dick getting cut off, maimed, eaten, something like this. Definitely some woman reclaiming her power. (laughs) I'm dying. (laughs) I think you guys hit it on the spot. Literally, you're describing a Saw movie, so we're good. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of a woman reclaiming her power... I think a slasher Ryan would be plenty of boob. <laughs> you beat me to it. But also like nothing 
from the 70s or 80s, every character is distinct and easy to identify from the rest. Oh my God. So a 90s horror (laughs) movie with lots of boobs. Comprised of only actors and actresses that Ryan knows, which is like 10 different options. But they also have to have really cute puppies and or dogs in it (laughs) as well. That don't die. (laughs) And a really tall, attractive black man. Oh God, yes. (laughs) Mic drop. Oh, or several. So basically what we want is, for, for Ryan, I'm hearing Idris Elba just runs up and stabs people and then looks lovingly into the camera. Yes, but the makeup has to look good and the practical effects too. Remember that. So Suicide Squad? Essentially. <laughs> I think the one thing you guys are missing for me is I really love a killer with like a good intention. You know, I really fall in love with a... Mm, I really like to root for a killer. You know, that's that's a, the shit that I'm into. But Freddy didn't have good intentions at all. But you could still root for him. I mean, did he not? You know, he's just trying to get revenge. Increase the dream world population. (laughs) Which is a noble goal. Sure, let's ignore that horrific backstory he has about why he got murdered in the first place. Well, I I completely don't know. The second one doesn't exist in the canon. That doesn't happen. He's not a pedophile. (laughs) Yeah, Ryan famously does not acknowledge that element. (laughs) Ryan's Freddy is not guilty of those crimes. He's innocent, sweet man, just needs more company. And speaking of guilty of crimes, Paris's ideal, oh man, everyone has to have totally on fleek fashion choices. Agree. Agree. And like, I know I said attractive people for Alexis, but for Paris, like, it's important, okay? These people have to be dimes. They need their own style. They have places to go, people to see. They're all doing something, and it has to be practical. They specifically have to be carved by the gods. <laughs> they have to be flawless creatures. And even then, it can really only be gorgeous women. Absolutely gorgeous women. Uh, if there is a male central to the story, he wants nothing to fucking do with it. <laughs> so true. There also needs to be a dumb bitch <laughs> or a stupid bitch in the movie. <laughs> okay, but he loves a smart one as well. <laughs> but there's got to be a dumb one. Alexis is right. <laughs> but also one has to be evil and conniving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of them or somebody in the movie needs a completely realistic wig that they are wearing super well. <laughs> yeah. Also, there has to be something that appears to set the feminist movement back by about 50 years years but somehow he's okay with it <laughs> oh my god <laughs> so true though okay i think you guys are missing one very important deeper element for paris's movie nipples <laughs> no it is he loves a callback or like an easter egg you know like a little nugget he loves a hidden nugget that relates to something that he gets i do i absolutely do i feel dragged by this right now but it, i can't deny any of it <laughs> by a callback do you mean a callback to panic at the disco because if there's at least one panic at the disco track he's in there i'm in it how do we not address the music of the movie that alexis would slash because that's i feel like a really good point there that's oh yeah true. it's a very specific soundtrack and i can't tell i know for paris obviously the shortest possible shorts are very important but i don't know if ryan or alexis would really care about that nah. what i've talked about short shorts so much yeah but paris cares about them more yeah, yeah he definitely cares more but i think we can all care about them he'd care more to wear them okay so we have to get for mac out of the way the obvious here which is science fiction space something in space yeah but also women are treated 100 percent respectfully in the movie no if ands or buts on that rule and the main guy has to wear moccasins obviously he also loves a story that is like rooted in a realistic 
like historical times and like not at a time period, but he loves something that's relevant to something that happened in the world and he can make a point about it. You know, like he cares about these people and you have to know what happened 10 years before this. But it has to be logical. Exactly. You can't be fictionalizing that shit. It has to be ripped straight out of a history book. Also, any representation of Army of Darkness gets a slash. Basically, the moccasin wearing man has to be Bruce Campbell. Exactly. Also, a steady cam needs to be utilized for every single shot, and there can be no gross sounds. <laughs> Basically, what you're saying is I want Wes Anderson to make horror movies with Bruce Campbell in them. Yes, yes. Or, hear me out, I know it's going to sound wild. Give me the exorcism in space. He Ooh. does love He does love the exorcism. So wait, there's, there's actually there's episodes of Star Trek that are like that. Ooh. We need the exorcist in space. We need some real serious Catholic dads in there. They've got to be bringing out the the one ghost, the one true ghost, the holy ghost (laughs) aboard the Nostradamus. This all sounds amazing. You know what's weird is that I'm so not well-versed in sci-fi that I have a hard time even knowing what to say you would like in a movie because just the generalization of sci-fi is all I have. <laughs> That's I can't get any more detailed than that. Chupacabra. Maybe something with like an AI antagonist as well. Well, I actually like an AI protagonist where the AI and robots are actually like the heroes or the good guys or they're being, you know, suppressed in some way and now they're set free by the end of the movie. Did we all also mention any movie that has any Star Trek? character or cast members in it oh yeah so just like ryan's movie can only be cast by the 10 people she knows <laughs> max movie can only be cast by star trek alumni also i think there's something to be said about like the attempts at scaring mac right if a movie doesn't try to scare mac and base a lot of its efforts on mac being scared it's a slash but if he's supposed to be scared it's not gonna work can't try too hard that's absolutely correct. The real trick is to not be a horror movie at all. <laughs> <laughs> and instead just be an episode of Star Trek. Right. And then say something about the nature of mankind. Right. And Sigourney Weaver gets an exorcism. And if you've listened to this podcast long enough, you probably already knew all those things about all of us, to <laughs> yeah, be fair. For real. <laughs> so true. Disney horror, in a way, that do a lot of like, I can't make noises with my mouth, so I can't do an impression of that. <laughs> I think I'm pretty on board with what Max said here. I'm going to be honest. It's like, are the, you kidding me? We just talked about this before we went on the mics. The, the end ending got you of this movie. Yes. What did I say? I thought we both said we were very surprised at the ending. Like we didn't see it coming. Max like, Oh, I saw it coming. Okay. You're talking about one particular twist. That's that's mentioned in the ending. I think we're talking about the entire third half as a as, as a closure. The whole movie. attempt half. to wrap up the story. All right, strike one. Then I'm giving you my keys tonight, and I'm gonna go find somewhere to sleep. Uh, <laughs> Alexis protest is making herself homeless. <laughs> she won't sleep in a bed until everybody slashes this movie. Alexis, you want to buy a plane ticket and come sleep in my bed? I will totally be down for that. At least we know good horror. Same team. We've all been there, which I think it's good to have this conversation. Now, with all of that being said, my favorite kill actually goes to Alice, specifically because of the shot we get of her with like the white cotton panties plus the denim jacket. I feel like if I'm ever going to be killed with an axe, I want to be wearing that exact look and just be like crumpled in a pile on a cabin floor. That is going to be your look. That's for sure. (laughs) She was wearing panties. Well, she wasn't bottomless. Alice who has the short hair who was in the cave that whole time wasn't she just wearing like shorts wait alice are you thinking of the girl who died after she had sex i'm thinking of the girl that was like a bitch and burned the other girl in my notes i wrote her name is alex the long dark hair oh that's not her name no but then i was like oh i must have misheard her name and it was alice sheila 
Sheila. Sheila is the girl who burned the other girl, but... Oh, yeah. The hippie or the yacht? There's a hippie, there's a yacht. I'm pretty sure it's Sheila, the yacht, in a denim jacket and white panties. Wasn't Sheila in the bathroom? Oh, no. We see her. So, wait. So, he, so she's tackling her in the bathroom, right? And then Gary's in there with her, and then he chops Gary's head off, and then... Oh, yeah. Sheila got knocked unconscious, but Sheila didn't die. She was looking real dead. If you're looking for a girl who was wearing panties crumbled on the floor, then that would be Joan. Joan. They look similar. Joan is the hippie. But that's like the third kill. I feel like this was later. I mean, the kills were later. It didn't start till like the middle of the movie. She's like up against the wall in the corner, crumpled on the floor with the killer on like the left side. And she's in like a denim jacket and some white panties. And I was like, bitch, that's a look to die on. Oh, plus Sheila's a Sunnyvale kid. Yeah. She didn't die. She got knocked unconscious. It's definitely Joan. None of the Sunnyvale kids die? No. Is that a thing? The only one who got hurt is Nick. Also, we need to address that Alice's name is Ryan in real life. Uh, Paris, I'm sending the link in the group chat, 1355. Yeah, that's definitely her. She's wearing like a denim jacket and pink. Yep, that's her. It's Joan. Yep. Yep. Oh, yeah. And she does kind of look like Sheila. Yes. Okay. That's her. Absolutely. Definitely thought that was Sheila. Cool. It's it's literally exactly. Paris. Look exactly. at the, bul- the bulge and everything. <laughs> it's just a bulge. <laughs> it does look like a little bulge. <laughs> okay. Okay. So why did they flip names? Like I don't understand. They didn't. Ziggy is her nickname. She was always C Berman. They were both C Berman. They had parents like mine where they named us all with the same initials. Then why did they make it seem like they were switching names? They had a realization because she started telling them the story about Ziggy and Cindy and Cindy sounds like C. Berman, but it was just an assumption that we all made. Ziggy was always the C. Berman that is in the movie, like the adult. But didn't Nick at the end, like pull some kind of stunt with the emergency responders? Yeah. Nick's like, no, you are so-and-so. Yeah. I think it was just like, they were just having a moment. Yeah. He called her by her actual first name. He didn't call her Cindy interesting so i thought that i had just like misheard c berman and that it was actually z berman and that's why it was ziggy it's written in a phone book her name is christine okay so that's why the characters in the 90s were like wait you're that sister yes okay so that was the reveal okay this is all making sense now in that throbbing bladder or whatever was down there. Oh, I hated that. Okay. <laughs> could have could have stopped right there. I think throbbing is not a word that we want everyone to use. It was though. <laughs> it was pulsating? Pulsating. Quivering? No, pulsating. Quivering. Trembling. Quivering is pretty good too, the quivering bladder. <laughs> that, that sounds like a fucking D&D tavern. <laughs> the quivering, <laughs> the quivering ugh, bladder. Adventurers. Oh, you awaken in it. the quivering bladder. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you do know, of course, that all kids in the 70s were worshiping Satan, and that's why they did things like this. That's why bullying was so rough back in the day. <laughs> Obviously. Of course. It was, this, it was the, the satanic panic that really got to everyone. And the reefer madness. They smoke weed and listen to Satan. Marijuana's bad, okay? Just gonna warn you guys, I don't have much to say about characters. Has everyone gone? Yes. Don't look at me like that, Paris. 
<laughs> not burdened by the incompetence around me. This happened so much when I was a kid. It's like uh, when you're pulling all the weight in all the group projects, right? In boot camp, everybody else would get us all in fucking trouble, and I'm just trying to do the right thing the whole time. Aren't all sideburns horrible? Isn't that like part of their characteristic? Horribleness? Not on Elvis. Uh, it's just because it was Elvis, to be honest. I could do without the sideburns. Well, really what we need is like a, a middle way, right? So we need not quite full on sideburn, but not like no sideburn. You need like a little bit of sideburn. Do you? It it helps like shape your head or something. I don't know. Isn't it so weird how we're okay with patches of hair in certain parts of our faces, but not in other parts of our faces? I'm not okay with hair in a lot of places. But the middle of your forehead? No. The middle of your forehead side by side? Eyebrows? Yes. Yes. 